Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So the first practice question we have today is from me. And I said, list at least three considerations when determining volume and frequency of tube feeding flushes. And you guys put some great comments, right? We're going to be thinking about fluid needs, right? We want to be thinking about how much water is the tube feed providing and that we're going to be using our flushes to help kind of fill that fluid deficit. So how much fluid does someone need if they need more, right? We're going to give more volume with our fluids. Another thing we want to be thinking about is volume status, right? Does this patient have edema and we potentially don't want to be giving them additional fluids? We want to be thinking too, how many flushes are they getting with meds? Remember when nurses are giving flushes, they're also giving, and the, and the meds are through the tube feed, feeding tube, they're going to also be giving sometimes between 30 or 60 milliliters before and after each medication. So how much fluid are they getting there? Is the patient on a fluid restriction, right? This is going to be helping you to see, you know, what is my goal? Is my goal to meet 100% of their fluid needs? Or if they're on a fluid restriction, your fluid goal will be that fluid restriction. And then we also want to be thinking Two, about what's the concentration of the formula, right? Are we trying to keep it very concentrated for this patient? I might not want to give more flushes, or do we want to be giving additional water with the flushes? So lots of different things to be thinking about and some great answers there. Next up, we have another question from me. We have a patient is 65 kilos. They have a stage one pressure injury and stage four CKD. How much protein should be given? This one's multiple choice. We can give 98 grams, we could give 65 grams, we could give 45 grams or 32 grams. And this is a style of question that I've been seeing more and more people get on the exam where they're asking about pressure injuries in the context of CKD, which can be tricky, right? Because you're hearing pressure injury, we need high protein. And then you're hearing CKD and you're like, we need to back off on the protein. So how I would approach this question after, of course, reading it to make sure I read the whole thing, I would say, okay, stage one pressure injury. What do I know about stage one pressure injury? Right? There's four stages of pressure injury, and stage one is just redness on the skin. So there's no, there's no skin breakdown at this point. So, you know, these patients actually don't have higher protein needs. We just want to make sure they're having adequate protein. So I'd be saying, okay, how does the stage one pressure injury impact my protein needs? I should just give them adequate protein for their current disease state, right? Because we want to prevent it getting worse. So then I have that CKD stage four, and I know with CKD stage four that there is a protein restriction slightly, right? We're going to be giving 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilo. So knowing that information, 
that I'm going to be aiming for that adequate protein of the 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilo, I can do one way first if you want to start with saying, okay, well, if I'm giving, you know, 65 kilo, if the patient 65 kilos and I'm giving them, right, what's going to be the range? I'm going to be giving them 0.6 potentially, so 65 kilos times 0.6, that's 39 grams of protein. And then what's that upper range? 65 times 0.8. That's going to be 52. So if I look at my options, again, they were 98, 65, 45, or 32 grams, I'm going, oh, I don't see it there, right? I don't see it. But then what I want to notice is that I'm looking for somewhere in the range, right? It doesn't have to be 0.6. It doesn't need to be 0.8. It needs to be in the range. So that is one way to notice that the answer is C. 45 grams. Now, the other way that you can solve this is to be saying, okay, I know I want the range of 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilo, but, right, I already have their weight. So I can also kind of go down and divide the grams of protein by the weight and say, what is it giving, right? So if I do 98 divided by 65, that's 1.5 grams per kilo, way too high. Then I do 65 divided by 65, that's one, still too high. Right, 45 divided by 65, this is going to be 0.7 grams per kilo. Okay, that's in range. We like that one. And then 32 divided by 65 is 0.5, which is way too low. So you can go about it either way. The math I want you thinking about is the fact that this patient needs adequate protein for their disease state. Adequate protein for CKD stage 4 is going to be between 0.6 and 0.8. Next one, we have a counseling question. So remember, counseling is in domain one, and counseling has a lot of vocab on it. So it's saying, during a nutrition counseling session, you, your patient states, I'd really like to eat healthier, but I can't because my toddler only wants to eat pizza and macaroni and cheese. Or saying, in motivational interviewing, this statement would be an example of what? And we have options such as, Sustain talk, discord, self-efficacy, or reflection. So what we're thinking here is I'm going back to my vocab with my motivational interviewing. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, what is this patient saying, right? They're saying, I would like to eat healthier, but I can't. So this patient, if we're thinking about the stages of change, right, this patient's in contemplation. They're like, I want to, but this is why. I can't, right? And we're not seeing stages of change vocabulary here, right? Options we're seeing is sustained talk, discord, self-efficacy, or reflection. And so something to think about is that when a patient is telling you, this is why I cannot do this, this is going to be their sustained talk, right? I'm telling you why I cannot, right? Versus change talk is when they're telling you, you know, kind of a little hint that they can do it. So because this patient is telling you I why I'm going to be having to sustain the behavior, this is going to be, this is going to be sustained talk. So next one we have is from a student, and she is saying she was getting a question talking about continuous quality improvement, and she was seeing that the answer was lean. And it's always good when you're going through questions, pocket prep, inman, 
eat right prep and you're seeing a term and you're like, um, excuse me, where was this an image? And you're going to have that a lot. That's when it's really great to ask a question on here or also going to Google too because you guys know I love Google so much because there's going to be things that you're going to see for the first time in the practice question. So when we're thinking about the lean quality improvement method, we want to be thinking that lean quality improvement method is all about removal of waste. And what it's saying is waste is anything that's not adding value to the customer. So let's think kind of about like lean meat, right? We're trimming the fat. So things that could be seen as a time waste that we would remove in lean would be delays in transport patients, waiting, excessive movements, you know, defects in the product. So when we're talking about kind of making it more efficient, less wasteful, less wasting time, energy, and resources, that's when we're thinking about we're thinking about lean. Now that can be confusing too with Six Sigma. So what we want to be thinking about with Six Sigma is it's similar. And again, with management, a lot of things are similar. But Six Sigma is really focused on trying to limit the defects and variability in that original process. Versus lean, we're saying, okay, let's trim the fat. Let's take away anything that's really not quite working for us anymore. Okay. Next question that we had was a question that said, who would be the most appropriate candidate to have parental nutrition? We have a 12-year-old girl coming in for um, a right, removing of the appendix. We have a middle-aged woman who's beginning chemo, elderly woman who has emphysema, and a young man going for a gallbladder removal. So this question the student was saying, in the Inman, the answer is B, which is the middle-aged woman starting chemo. She's saying, I don't understand why, because we don't know which surgery she's having. Maybe her gut's still working. And this is a great question to ask because the Inman questions, in my opinion, they tend to not always, always be too great. So this student's 100% correct where, like, I don't know. You know, I would be questioning this too, right? If I'm the dietitian on this case and they're like, do you think this patient needs, you know, nutrition support? And I'm like, and the only thing I know that she's getting chemo? No, right? I don't have enough information. So these are the types of questions that it's good to kind of discuss and go into a discussion of, right, who, what cases for these patients would you potentially need parental nutrition, right? So someone going in to get their appendix removed, very, very slim chances that they would ever need parental nutrition, right? If we're thinking about the anatomy of the body, the appendix kind of hangs off your intestines. We don't need it. It's a very easy procedure to get it removed. Before it's removed, if it's inflamed, you probably are not too comfy. Um, but as long as the surgery is just removing the appendix, we do not need to start this patient on parental nutrition. Now, the middle-aged women getting chemo, like we said, we don't really have enough information for this. But I work in oncology, and what I would be thinking about with times that chemotherapy is going to be causing me to want to offer parental nutrition, I'd be thinking about, well, which chemotherapy side effects compromise the gut? So one of the ones I see most often in my chemotherapy patients is diarrhea, right? So if I'm having a patient with really high 
diarrhea output, right? That's an indication for TPN because I'm worried that if I feed the gut, it's going to come right out. Another reason why a patient with chemotherapy might end up needing parenteral nutrition is if they have really, really bad mucositis. Sometimes it's in the esophagus. And remember, mucositis is the inflammation of the mucous membranes, not like mucus. And so a lot of my patients who have mucositis, esophagitis, they can't eat and there's no way we're passing a tube through that esophagus. It's, it's too inflamed. Um, sometimes my patients too with um, oncology, they have small bowel obstructions too. So that's when I would offer parental nutrition. So lots of reasons why a cancer patient might need parental nutrition. But again, someone just knocking on my go door and going, Dana, this patient's on chemo. Should we start TPN, right? I'm going to have a, a lot more questions for that patient and their doctors too. Um, next up, we have a question of an acid ash would be created by ingesting what? And options are corn and strawberries, milk, vegetables, and fruit. And so this question is definitely one that we don't really see too, too often because we're never really kind of talking about, you know, the ass the acid and alkaline kind of ash diets. But what we're really thinking about here too is they're used to prevent different types of kidney stones. So if you're having a more acidic kidney stone, you want to try to be creating an alkaline ash. And what you want to be doing to do that is increasing um, your intake of vegetables, fruits, things like brown sugar, molasses, because we're trying to increase calcium, sodium, potassium, magnesium. If the gallstone, not the gallstones, the kidney stones are caused by um, an alkaline stone, you want to create an acid ash. So here we'd be adding things like meat, fish, uh, poultry, eggs, shellfish, cheese, grains. And this is to increase the, uh, the anions of chloride, phosphorus, and sulfur. So knowing these is definitely going to be helpful. And again, that's where the best thing to do is ask the question because the information isn't always readily available. Okay, next up we have a question of what, which of the following is an example of a violation of benevolence according to the Code of Ethics? And so when we're thinking about the Code of Ethics, we want to make sure that we're very familiar with the vocab. And if you haven't already, definitely head to the Academy's website and check out their code of ethics as a good reminder, right? I feel like we all took medical ethics in school, but maybe it's been a hot sec. So when we're thinking about our code of ethics, we're thinking about autonomy, non-maleficence. Um, we're thinking about benevolence and justice. So when we're thinking about benevolence, you want to think about it more of trying to do, you know, good, see the good in everyone, be professional, respecting people too. And so when we're thinking about, well, what would be an example of not doing this, not being professional, this one would be the option where we're saying sending an all staff memo to accuse someone, right, of theft, of theft, right? Because here we're not really being professional. We're not trying to kind of treat everyone correctly correctly too. First, if we're thinking about autonomy, this is someone's right to kind of do things for themselves. So we're always talking a lot of the time with patient autonomy, 
where this is their ability to choose what they want to be doing. A lot of times I think about this with my patients on chemotherapy, right? Respecting patients' autonomy is when the patient says, I don't want to do chemotherapy, that you're saying that's okay, right? You are trying to, you know, kind of support them too. So next up, we have a question about safe temperatures. And so this can definitely be confusing because when we're thinking about safe temperatures and things like the danger zone, you might be seeing kind of different sources kind of saying things slightly different. And that's because sometimes we're seeing some sources where they're talking about kind of generalizing like, oh, all hot food should be this. But you want to remember that sometimes there are foods that are hot foods that don't necessarily need to be to 145, right? When we're thinking about hot foods, we're usually thinking like, oh, it has to be at least 145 to get out of the danger zone, right? And typically when we're thinking about the danger zone, right, we're thinking definitely on the lower end of 41, but then we're typically might be th seeing data that's saying, oh, it's to 135 or 140. So the reason why you're going to see some references say that the danger zone goes up to 135 when you're like, that's not a safe temperature to cook things to, is because if you're having hot fruit or vegetable, they can be at 135. So you're correct in thinking no meat should be 135. But if you're having hot fruits or vegetables, they you can keep them at 135 and that's considered a safe a safe temperature too. So definitely good to make sure that you're aware of the different temperatures that you're putting different um, foods at because you want to notice is it asking you in general or is it asking you more specific. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.